Hello and welcome to What Is It About the Weather, where weather is always the theme, but the weather is seldom the topic. So this week we're going to be talking about weather modification. What's that? What'd you say? Somebody messing with your weather? Just maybe. So hang on. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But before we dive into the main topic, let me just say I hope you've had a enjoyable and interesting weather week since we last talked. I know mine's still a little too warm, although across the pond over in Europe and parts of northern Asia, I know they've been getting some cold and even snowy weather. They would probably take my weather. Well, I'll trade with them for a while now. You know, I may take that back at some point, but I, I really, on my scale of comfortable, it's still a little too high for me. It's just been one of those years, I guess. Any case... But that wasn't my only connection to the weather this week. I had one of these kind of almost like the podcast, very weather-oriented weeks, but not so much um, due to the weather itself. I had the pleasure of giving a lecture this week at one of my alma maters, Georgia Tech, related to something called the Weather Challenge. Link, show notes, if you want to read more, of course. But this is an annual competition, and it's done through colleges and and some like you know national labs and organizations that also participate in the weather but but not in the commercial space and it's been going on for about 10 years it replaced an older competition that's existed so these sort of things have gone on for a while so you know what you may not realize is every year about a thousand academically oriented weather weenies get together and they try to outdo each other in a weather competition you know kind of like fantasy sports so a little bit of a of a friendly competition so you compete with the different schools, but you also compete with people in, in kind of light categories. So like freshmen and sophomores compete against one another and juniors and seniors and faculty staff, as well as, like I said, they've added this alumni thing. There's a graduate student level in there. So all these different uh, groups compete. And there's that competition, again, across, you know, at a team level in these different category levels at a national level for you know, the best overall as well. And I've had the pleasure, so this this specific competition, like I said, it's been going on for 10 years, and three times someone from Georgia Tech has won it. Not me in any of those cases, but in two of those years, I, I came in second to that person, and I've had the opportunity to win both the, the faculty staff as well as the alumni category, which I did last year. And it, you know, you may think, oh, come on, it, it can't be that competitive. Well, weather folk, just like everybody else, are pretty competitive people, so... Uh, it's enjoyable. It, it helps me keep my skills up and you know, just think about things a little differently. And that's kind of what I was uh, lecturing about was not so much the science. There are plenty smarter people than me that, that get the science well, uh, including uh, Dr. Black at, at Georgia Tech, who has won this competition twice. He's the only person ever to have done that. And they see things that way. I see things a little differently. You know, my IT background, even though I, I get the science, I, I just, my brain doesn't quite get to that level. So I think about it a little differently. And like I said, while I, I've never won it nationally, I've, I've come in sixth one year and seventh one year overall and, and won my categories that year. So I'll take that. I, I think I understand it pretty well. And it gave me a chance to kind of maybe relate those ideas to people that um, aren't necessarily on the, uh, their brains just can think in the atmosphere. So so that was kind of fun. I, I enjoyed doing that. Hopefully the class got something out of it. In any case, let's move on to our main topic, weather modification. Now, let me first start by saying, yeah, it's real. It's real. It's been going on for a long time. It's not something new. But let's 
we're going to talk about it and and talk about the the realities versus the non-realities and you know one of those times when you're going to get some life lessons I think I'm going to throw in here as well but let's start with kind of weather modification where it is today so this is something that based on some analysis done by the World Meteorological Organization over 50 countries around the globe do this and that's pretty incredible when you think about it now before you get all worried about it and think, oh my gosh, my weather is being modified every day, there's a good chance your weather, your specific weather is hardly ever being modified. But it's kind of like when, you know, when I get a listener, and you guys have seen my tweets, I got a listener in Argentina, therefore I, I take that map and I make all of Argentina blue. I know darn well that you know the vast majority of the Argentine population is not listening to uh, this podcast, but... Somewhere it's going on, and, and this is kind of the same thing. Weather modification, some countries are more active than others. But, you know, it's it's grown globally quite a bit in the past few years, and I think that's kind of interesting. Now, most of it's focused around precipitation, and you can imagine that. You know, trying to deal with, with droughts and famines and avoiding those things and mitigating risk and all that sort of stuff, it's become something that uh, is very important for a lot of countries or they're trying to determine if it's something that can be useful for them. And the other part that's crept up recently is in the past, you know, you always have talked about these very specific things and schemes and the research going on around them, but there's also more chatter about inadvertent weather modification. And I'll give you an example. There was um, in Amarillo, Texas, or the, actually the Panhandle of Texas, it was, the study was done by someone out of the Amarillo office for the National Weather Service, did a study about industrial plants leading to a downwind snow event. You know, it, very localized, but there are setups where things that are going on all the time can, and it happens naturally, but it also happens in man-made. You know, we talk about urban heat island effects, something very man-made, something that we know we're contributing to. But even when you're trying to do good, so I I don't want to get into this, you know, CO2 argument and all that kind of stuff, but you can have a big wind farm and that can modify weather behavior downstream of that. I even saw something on solar collectors and how intense the sunlight is they're trying to put together and that having a potential impact. So, the research around it is is not just on the the areas where we're intentionally trying to do it, but also where the goal is to mitigate or avoid situations where we're accidentally doing it or it's unintentional as well. Shipping is another area where that's that's crept up and potentially impacting sea surface temperatures, but also clouds because the stacks, whether it's releasing. Um, just steam, which is what it is a lot of the time, or particulate matter, depending on how the the boat is is powered, can alter what the the makeup is. Contrails that you see from planes. Now we don't fully always understand, but it does. It it is a change. You know, when you have a cloud that wasn't there before, it's reflecting the sunlight in a different way, and so all of it is trying to better understand these things. But let's let's step back for a minute and talk about the history of weather modification and why it's very focused on precipitation. So it's not a new thing. Uh, again, when you know, I, I guess you could say that people have always wished they could break a heat wave, but so often it's like I just we need more rain. I mean, that's kind of where you hear about weather modification historically, and you know there have been 
dances, there have been prayers to different deities, whatever it might be, in hopes of, of rain. And quite frankly, this is not just that sort of thing. I mean, governments, the U.S. government was sponsoring attempts to create rainfall after the Civil War in the U.S., Using the you know there's had been some anecdotal evidence people noticed that quite often there was rain after big battles where there was a lot of smoke or other particular particulate matter introduced into the air. Now that's a natural science thing. We we know and we've talked about this before, right? So rain does better forming or condensing around things being in the air, not just trying to do it out of thin air. So. Smoke can be one of those things or other debris that may have been thrown in the sky, small debris, not you know big pieces of dirt that are falling back to the ground or anything. And so the U.S. government, there was research around this that believed that even forest fires or other things like that could trigger it. Now, in the right circumstances, all these things could trigger it. But they were just doing this out of nowhere thinking it was going to magically create rain. And like many of the things before it, it wasn't working. Well, in the 1940s, 1950s, seeding of clouds in the atmosphere, we, we really began to understand how it is you could trigger rain. And a lot of those early experiments weren't always successful either. But they began to understand when you might be able to tweak a situation and trigger more meaningful rain or longer-lasting rain or rain in an, an environment that was close to it but wasn't quite delivering. And so this research happened in the, you know, in the 40s, the 50s. Then in the 60s, things got real serious. I mean, organizations like the American Meteorological Society created a committee that was focused to this very topic. And let's keep in mind when I'm talking about this, like I said, precipitation is the main thing. Cloud seeding is what you'll hear is the main thing. But we're really talking very small scales. We're talking what what we call in the weather world the micro and the meso scale. So, you know, tens or hundreds of, of feet or meters to, you know, a hundred at most, I would say. I, I, I've seen some different things. I've read a, a few different things that, you know, the scale still it depends on the situation. Most of the time it's done, it's actually done very localized. You know, as an example, I mean, you can think of a ski resort, and this isn't really what I would, you would traditionally call weather modification because you're not so much modifying the weather outcome, but, you know, doing snow creation. I mean, they are kind of modifying their own weather. They're creating snow out of a non-snow event, right? But in agricultural situations and other things where they are seeding clouds, they're introducing things in the atmosphere, and this this might be done from the ground or from the air. And, you know, what they were trying to do is you're, you're trying to create additional precipitation, or that's that's been the focus. But as you can imagine, that's not easy to do on a big scale, and it usually doesn't work on a big scale because you, you've got to, you know, can you imagine how many planes it would take to deliver that much material or, or even launching it from the ground to impact things on, on a larger scale. So, again, very tends to be very focused locally. Now, as I said, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the conspiracy theory side of this thing as we close out the topic, but let's talk about the real science for a bit. Like I said, it's been focused around precipitation. Our knowledge has continued to increase about how best to do it, what uh, particular... Uh, excuse me, particulate would be best for condensation to form. In the, you know, cre- basically, you're trying to create clouds more often than not that eventually lead to rain. Or, again, you might be 
taking an environment that's primed for rain but is missing the particulate matter uh, to be effective in, in creating this condensation process that, you know, it's a cycle. It, whether it's a thunderstorm or whether it's more of a, you know, what you think of a more of a wintertime rain or a snow event that, that can be more uniform in nature. All these things tend to need little triggers sometimes or something to make it more open to giving you more precipitation. And that's really what's going on with these things. But, you know, it's not just, it isn't just research. I mean, there are commercial companies involved in this process, and there are organizations like the Weather Modification Association. Yes, that's real. The North American Weather Modification Council. I mean, these are real actual organizations and agencies that do research that are um, groups of, of companies that are involved in, in what's going on here. But again, mostly focused on this thing. But there have been some interesting cases. So, you know, when we had all the hurricanes back in uh, 2005, 2006, there was all this talk about hurricane mitigation. It, it, would there be some way to do it? And yes, there have been movies on this stuff. And no, this stuff in movies is not real. Um, but, you know, there were patents filed by a company Bill Gates was involved with, or, you know, I don't know if it was a, an actual company or an organization or whatever, about a way that you could potentially try to um, dissipate a hurricane, right? Or that's, that's what the goal was. And the reason larger scale things like that don't tend to work is because of the magnitude of what's involved. You know, when, when you think about a hurricane, this isn't a tremendous amount of energy or even a thunderstorm. It's a tremendous amount of energy, and sometimes it's important to think about it that way. And dissipating that much energy, you, you've got two things. One is the amount of energy and how hard it is to stop it once it's moving forward, but the other is the organization aspect. And sometimes you, if you were trying to think on that scale, and, and there is research in this area, you're more likely looking for the Achilles heel, right? Or is there some way? Because let, let's be realistic. If you tried to put up a wall along the border of, I don't know, western border of Tennessee, not not huge state here in, in, in the U.S., whether it would just form or move around it, right? You might disrupt it a little bit, but you're not going to change anything. And, that, and that's why you generally have to think on smaller scales. And... Or if, if there was some way you could disrupt in a meaningful manner that the flip side couldn't take place, or for instance with hurricanes, you'd more likely want to stop them from forming to begin with. So the, the modification process would be, is there some way to dissipate? And, and there is research into this, so it's not just about creating precipitation, but maybe dissipating dangerous precipitation like hail. And, and research is done along those lines as well. So, so these things all do come into play. And they are real. They are science that's going on all the time. Like I said, there's both there's both research in the private sector. There's actual work being done. But this is the real science. Okay, so let's summarize. Small scale, okay, tends to be precipitation focused. We're not talking about trying to steer a hurricane or, or trying to, you know, overrun the country with some mass change in weather and we're generally talking about precipitation even even these committees have come out with statements about you know anything that's related to a hurricane or tornado can you imagine if you really could turn a tornado and you tried to do it real time so all that stuff's even just any of it that's done is done in modeling okay 
So don't get too flipped out if you hear about weather modification and don't think that someone's, you know, trying to do you in or anything. But it may be trying to look at ways that we could minimize the impacts of drought, make sure famines were avoided. But that doesn't come without ethics as well. And so there are even ethical groups that are involved in this process that investigate and talk about, should we be doing these things? And if we're doing them on what scale? And are we doing it safely? So a lot of thought process is put into this. And it's not a trivial exercise. But with all things, it, that's a, it's a evolutionary process. I mean, we, we gain new technology, new knowledge that might be useful. And hopefully it will always continue to be used to the benefit. But I'm not naive to think that if there was an ultimate weather weapon, yeah, some country might want to use it against another. And so hopefully we won't get there. Um, I, I'd actually like to think that we won't gain the knowledge to be able to control weather at, at that scale. But what is born out of all that, you know, you start talking about weather modification and you get conspiracy theories. And you've heard me say it before. I'm all for a conspiracy theory. I don't have a problem with there being, you know, conspiracy theories. But, you know, there's a difference between it being um, kind of intriguing and interesting and just when it goes overboard. So there's a couple of things with weather modification where this has come up. One is a project called HARP, and a second one has to do with chemtrails. Well, let's start with HARP. This was a project that was started in the 90s, a small outpost in Alaska, and, and HARP stands for, it's like high frequency, I'm not going to remember it all, but it's investigating the ionosphere uh, and the behavior of signals trying to get to the ionosphere, like to satellites and communication to satellites, etc. Now, this station does send a signal up. That's real. And it was funded by Defense Department organizations. So, of course, you're going to start seeing conspiracy theory stuff come out of that. Why wouldn't you expect to see it come out of that? But if you look at where this thing is and you look at the power that's actually being delivered to this place, there's no way it's doing anything that major. And quite frankly, the thing has been shut down. It's been turned back over to a university who's leasing it out to for projects. If countries or you know different organizations want to use it, they could pay and come use this thing. So if the government were really doing something, they would have done a better job hiding it. And trust me, there's no big underground thing here. The satellite images you could look and see. I mean, you know, there, there's been enough old growth forest around this thing for a long time. So I don't really think that's a big deal. The other one comes into deal with these chemtrail versus contrail. Now, I don't want to get into all, again, all the depth of this. because There's a lot of people that believe in, in the chemtrail thought. And I understand where that belief comes from. But... I also know enough about the science and looking at some of the things that most of what, you know, when, when people talk about a day when they see more contrails in the skies from planes, there's vast amount of more of jet traffic today than there was even 10 years ago and 10 years before that. And I see it even in Atlanta. I mean, I grew up in this city. And I hardly ever saw contrails growing up. I see them a lot now, but I, I can tell. I, I'll have my camera out. I can see it's a commercial jet. I know it's a commercial jet. And I understand enough about the science, about how contrails form, that it's just a contrail forming. And I get that. And, you know, it, it's not anything baffling to me. There's no big conspiracy going on. But not every – and some of the people that talk about chemtrails – have at least some knowledge and have some basis for making this. But you'll go out and you'll look at this stuff. And that's why in the show notes, I'll try to put some stuff about weather modification that you can go actually read if, if you think the topic's interesting. But there's, I, I watched this one video on YouTube today. 
And I was just stunned. So the first thing they tried to do is they were showing a past thing where the Weather Channel had shown something that was very peculiar-looking cloud patterns over the eastern U.S. And they and then this person tried to say, and they tried to write it off as something called gravity wave clouds or wave clouds or something. Well, anybody who's watched the series that I've started on What Is It About Clouds knows that those are very real things, and they are real things, and any of us with the scientific knowledge know they're real things. We're not being hoodwinked. I've seen them in action. I've seen them in action in places where there were, were not any planes or anything that could where it could be anything but gravity waves. So I know they're real. Okay. And then they went on to talk about and see the government is doing all this investigation and things and they're even doing the secret stuff. They came up with so I'll put a link into the twentieth conference on weather weather modification, both intentional and um you know, unintentional. There like I said, there's this whole there's you know, the inadvertent there's this whole committee within the American Meteorological Society and, and some of the annual conferences have this stuff and these other organizations have meetings because they need to talk about the research and all the things that are going on and she was talking about you know that Texas situation I was talking about and she was actually saying remember when you had that snow in Amarillo well the snow wasn't actually in Amarillo it was in a she didn't even she just looked at this thing and she was making it sound like if you know, they're, they're hiding this thing. Well, anybody can go Google this conference and see the stuff. It's right there online for anybody to see. So what I know is anything with a conspiracy theory is in a case where if something were really going on, trust me, there, I, I, weapons are being developed around us all the time, right? We, we know this. None of us are that naive to think that it's not happening. If a weather weapon was being developed, the government would likely do a much better job of hiding it up than having a conference where you can go and Google it and read all about it. Again, it's not to say that there, somebody's not trying to do a weather weapon, but you're not going to read about the abstract on a weather conference and say, see, see the Amarillo thing. They're, they're out to get you. No, they're not. So just remember, <laughs> whether it's looking at weather modification or other things in life, I, I, I do always like to subscribe to Occam's razor, and and the the philosophy is is pretty straightforward, right? So, what the thinking is is if you have a bunch of hypotheses to explain something, okay, and you pick the one that has that's less complicated, I, I guess is a better way to say it. I mean, technically, it it has to do with the fewest assumptions. You know, that this leads to this, that leads to this, and so on. Or this, you have to have these 12 things to set up this one thing, whereas there's another one that says, well, this one thing explains it. So it really just means, what's the simplest explanation? Now, that's not always the case. We all know that the simplest explanation is not always the case. But it's a good place to start. Because we all tend to see things that we want to see. So if we believe there's a conspiracy theory on something, it, we're going to feed ourselves and we're going to look up to the sky and I'm going to see contrails and then I'm going to start seeing chemtrails and that's going to go on and on and on. And my own brain is going to make me believe that I'm seeing things that may or may not be true. And it gets back to that same thing. Always be a skeptic, but not with just everything else in the world. Be a skeptic with what you believe yourself. And I don't, like I said, I don't care whether it's about reading weather modification or anything in life. The more you don't listen to 
what comes on your Twitter feed or is in Facebook or whatever news agency says it, you know, read about it. Don't don't just take anybody's word for it. I just we live in a day and age where we get all sorts of non-truths thrown at us all the time. So do a little reading. And no, you're you're going to say, well, when do you know you got the truth? I think most of us know, unless someone's going out of their way to hide something from us. You kind of know when you've reached a reasonable truth. And no, you don't need to do this for, you know, where am I going to eat dinner? Because if you lose $20 because the meal wasn't good and someone told you it was good and all these, you know, fake rating sites told you it was good, you know, those things happen. But if you're making major thought processes about, you know, where you're going to invest money or what you're going to do for a living or fundamentals of what you believe, the tenets of your belief system. And especially when you're responsible for others like kids, take the time, question, be skeptical, as I always say. And, you know, I I think that's probably more important with, with kids. And even like I was doing with this lecture in this class this week is I realize not everybody thinks the same. Right. We don't have this. We don't always have the same strengths. So I tried to relate it in a way that hopefully you could take the skeleton of how I do things and apply it in a method that makes sense for you. And that's how we should teach kids to think. It's critical thinking. You know, it's, it's very important. So weather modification, it is very real. There's a good chance you've never experienced any of it, however, so don't get caught up in it. It's kind of a neat topic. I enjoy it. It's stuff that I have sat in on some of these conferences and the sessions when I've gone to conferences in the past because it's a topic I find interesting, particularly when it comes to snowpack. And as you all know, I, I studied that, and it that could be particularly important. I find that more interesting than the rain because there's areas like the, the western U.S. that have seen declining snowpacks in areas where we have more people and putting more stress on a, a water system and a drainage a hydrology setup that is, you know, snowpack is the primary delivery method of water. So very important things. All right. Well, I, I've got to get ready to uh, get on a trip. I'm going to be heading up to the Big Apple for a couple of days and then Next week, I promise to try to get to the non-aqueous rain. I'd hope to do it this week, but I really am trying to dig a little bit more because while I want to talk about Sharknado, I also want to talk about some of the research because there is some that's been done, but it's a bit more sketchy and a little bit harder to dig into and find all the different sources. So I want to make sure I give it proper, it's proper due. So hopefully next week, I, I, I will do my best, but whatever it is, it's coming soon in any case. All right, so... Let's 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 wrap up here and let you get on with uh, your weekend or your day, whatever it might be. You know how to get hold of the podcast. What is it about the weather at gmail.com? Let us know what you're thinking. Show ideas, whatever feedback on an episode. It doesn't really matter. Getting any of the other stuff, getting past episodes, how to subscribe via the different feeds, whether it's iTunes or Google Plays, how to follow Facebook connect in LinkedIn, see the pictures on Instagram or on the, the Google album page, Twitter, whatever it is, however you might want to connect, all that stuff's on the website. What is it about the com? So go there, check it out, get all that information there. And I'll just close with our standard, you know, kind of talk about RSVP, rate, share, validate, and pledge. If your podcast tool, whether it's iTunes or something else, gives you an opportunity to rate, we'd appreciate that. If you have an opportunity to share, whether it's telling somebody about the podcast, you know, in a conversation, in an email, 
just retweeting or sharing posts that, that we may make about the podcast. That w- that's great. It's very much appreciated and very important. Validate. Continue to give us your ideas and your thoughts about what you want to hear, what you do like, what you don't like, whatever it might be. And the last part, of course, is pledge. No, the, the podcast is not free. Okay, It costs real money to keep it hosted, to get the equipment. You know, I'm throwing in my time for now, and as long as I can, I'll keep doing that. But anything that can be done, whether it's through Patreon or through the PayPal thing that's been set up to support the podcast and help offset that co- that cost, that would certainly be appreciated as well. But as I've always said, any way you can support us, any of those four methods is is helpful and appreciated. So until next time, until next time, may you have enjoyable and a course, interesting weather. And never stop looking at the ways that weather's connected to you in manners that you hadn't thought about before, because we all know there's much more to weather than the weather itself. We're tired of hearing our uncle grovel, so please support him on patreon.com slash weather. This is a two-word super production.